You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Josh Kinnebrew, who is using a combination of Rails and AI to build a system that lets you categorize invoices. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Nick. Happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your app? Yeah, so my name is Josh Kinnebrew. Uh, I've been working in IT for about 15 years. I kind of started doing computer and tech support for my family. First installed Ubuntu in uh, 2008 for college and kind of got interested in Linux and that whole philosophy uh, at that point. Started teaching myself programming in 2012, and one of my first programming jobs was working at a company called Agworld. Uh, I was doing DevOps, which is kind of a mixture of sysadmin kind of things and coding. And uh, so about a year after after I started teaching myself and it was in the DevOps position, I uh, started coming to the main code base and I've been hooked ever since. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, it must have been fun doing tech support for family because it's like, mom, is the printer on? Like, was it that type of stuff? Yes. And uh, some of my I, I say this tongue in cheek, but some of my favorite uh, moments are helping family members who just got a new iPhone or a new Android phone and setting up. Why, why do we have to have all these things other than a phone on here? Why do I need to check my email? Why is this always buzzing? And uh, yeah, printers especially. I, I don't know what it is about printers, but printers specifically uh, have given me the most grief, especially with family tech support. So uh, yeah. Right. So going back to the app here, it didn't seem to be like a public application that we can go and check out like a landing page and like watch a video to see how it works. Do you want to maybe give us a rundown of like what type of screens the app has and kind of, you know, bits and bobs about how it works? Yeah. So Robot Accounts is primarily used in the ag industry. I uh, grew up on a farm in California and uh, was always more technical than ag uh, specific. The working together of ag and technology has become a really big passion point for me and robot accounts is kind of the culmination of that so our goal and this most startups seem to have lofty goals and ours is no exception but our goal is to revolutionize the accounting industry Uh, the idea with robot accounts is to replace your back office by having uh, the grower in this case um, for a farmer who receives his invoices takes a picture and uploads them to robot accounts we use uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence to parse out the document parse out each of the line items on the invoice, standardize them according to our standardized database, and uh, get ready for submission to the accounting system. And we actually post the accounting system too, such as like QuickBooks or Xero. Um, We also take care of inventory, that kind of thing. So the idea is really just to revolutionize uh, the accounting industry, starting with ag. Let me see if I'm answering this correctly. Uh, So you're wanting me to walk through some of the screens on like what it would do or... Yeah, like basically, you know, if it's an invoicing app or something, is there like tabular data where you can like filter some stuff and like add invoices, uploads, et cetera, et cetera? So one of the ways that uh, Robot Accounts receives the invoices, um, a farmer would take a picture from his phone and upload it to Robot Accounts. He can do that one of two ways. One of them is inside the web app that he can use on his phone, or he can upload it via his email. So he can actually send an email to Robot Accounts and it'll it'll receive it um, and we can get into more of that, how that works later. But uh, when when the farmer goes in or the grower goes in or the accountant goes into robot accounts, 
they'll see a list of you know bills that need to be paid, bills by the status, what their due date is, um, how much they are, what state they're in. So they do they still need to be reviewed? Does there need to be a transcription approved? Are there manual journal entries that need to be added for specific bills? That kind of thing. And also if there's a bill that needs special attention or some sort of transcription approved, uh, that kind of thing is all displayed to the user in the app. And there's different ways that we drill down into that data. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like we're going to have a lot of great things to talk about here. So I'm curious, you know, every time you brought up the term ag, we're talking ag agriculture here, right? Yes. Okay, cool. Just wanted to make sure I'm I'm not dumb here because <laughs> I was like 99% sure, but not 100. No, but that's, uh, that's a fair question. Ag is agriculture. And I guess we use that term because uh, it's less to say. So when it comes to these invoices here, like scanning line items and using machine learning and artificial intelligence, like how many distinct line items have you tracked Give or take, like, you, you know, you, I, don't, I don't expect you to know like an exact number, but are we talking like dozens or hundreds of thousands? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I couldn't tell you the numbers off the top of my head. The biggest bill that we've tracked, I think, has 3,200 line items. And that was kind of a special use case where the supplier would send the invoice and they confused an invoice with an account statement. So it's like all the things that they've bought in the last quarter and we have to process all of those. So that one did take a while to process, but our system was built to handle it. Nice. So is this something where like you look at all of uh, the line items individually as a human being to double check like the machines work? And if so, like what was the accuracy of the AI? Yeah, so beginning out, what we did was uh, have a almost like a shadow, like a human shadow for each of the line items. So it would double check the transcription quality for that specific line item. And usually we won't actually put it as high confidence unless it is above 98%. So we're it's pretty accurate uh, even before a human came in and, and corrected those. What we do afterwards is we run it through a model that keeps training itself on how to make the transcriptions better. So it'll keep uh, the record of what the user changed it to and so we can go back and train a model based on that in the future. Okay, let's dive into the, the AI aspect and machine learning in a bit, but I'm, I'm more curious about how this app originally became built. Like, was this just you working on it in your spare time as a solo developer? Is there a couple of people working on it? Yeah, so when, when we first started out, it didn't really have a like this great light bulb moment that was like, we know exactly what we need to do and, and, uh, and how to do it. It was, I, I started, the first commit was, it, I did it in my car basically the initial idea was that we would just take some invoices and send them to the right places. So that's what it kind of started out as and kind of morphed from there based on the needs of our users and what we were seeing in the industry on how uh, poorly data is being kept, especially in the ag industry. Uh, if I, if I told you, you wouldn't believe it, but uh, there's, there's just so many, so many times that a, a grower will just pay an invoice and they don't even know where the product is or when they purchased it or that kind of thing. So we, we really set out to solve a lot of those problems and end up solving a whole bunch more along the way that, that we didn't even think of initially. Nice. And, and hopefully when you wrote that first commit in the car, you were the passenger, right? I, I was, uh, yeah, I was actually parked at, a, at a, one of our parks in the town. Yeah. But yeah, no, it, it was all safe. I was just uh, taking an afternoon off and I was like, huh, I wonder what this would look like. So, 
Nice. And then basically you've just been coding that. Is it like nights and weekends or is it full time? Yeah. So I work on it full time. Um, the initial bit of the app development that we did uh, was my, my co-founder and I, um, and we did it on nights and weekends or in between work. He and I initially scoped out the application. So we, we knew uh, initially what we'd, we'd want to do, but, um, but yeah, it, we would meet uh, for coffee on Fridays in the afternoons and kind of work on work on that and then nights and weekends until we got it sustainable enough to be able to work on it full time. Nice. And if you don't mind me asking now, like how many agricultural related clients do you have? Like how many people do you use, uh, use your service? Yeah. So we work with one of the top 100 accounting firms in the U.S. and they've got uh, multiple thousands of clients and we're basically onboarding all of them as soon as as soon as we can oh wow congratulations yeah thanks that's awesome now yeah let's maybe talk a little bit about some of the tech stuff here like when it comes to doing a little machine learning and ai and all that fun stuff normally and i'm a complete novice in this area but i find that a lot of folks choose python for something like that one do you want to go into what led you to use rails and like maybe like do you happen to use external services to do all the evaluations of these uploads yeah so the initial motivation for using rails was really familiarity None of the machine learning stuff is done in Rails. It's all done externally. Rails is really just the the platform that we build everything else on because it's so extensible. Uh, it's very familiar to my co-founder and I. He was the CTO of AgWorld, the first job that I got in programming. And uh, he developed, I think he was using Rails in 2008. And uh, I came along in 2012 and started using Rails. So it's very familiar to us, very familiar technology. And uh, it, was, it allowed us to just s scale quickly, make the, uh, bring the product to market quickly. Our MVP was actually done in four months. Uh, the first commit when I, was, when I was committing in my car was done on April 5th, 2019. And we brought it to production just in July. So it was, it was a really quick turnaround for the MVP. And I was working nights and weekends and that kind of thing. So... Rails allowed us to do that really quickly and then um, build the machine learning stuff on top of it, which was done in AWS and a few other external services. Ah, so you're using, uh, what is the name of that service? Is it recognition? Oh yeah, so so we, we do use in AWS, uh, we use Textract, which is their text extraction, like OCR document kind of thing. For some of the machine learning, we use SageMaker and another service that we're uh, evaluating to see if that's going to be the best fit instead of SageMaker. So. Okay. Is that alternate to SageMaker, another AWS service, or is that completely outside of AWS? No, it's outside of AWS, and the name escapes me at the moment, but uh, it's basically designed for quick iterations of your models instead of having SageMaker train something and then deploying the model after after a, a while, this one's more of a real-time model deployment where the the changes that you make are evaluated and deployed in real-time. Okay. And then for something like uh, Textract, I've only used that just basically to spin up like a proof of concept, but are you doing it in such a way where you have your own training machines in the background doing like extra work? Like it's not just AWS providing, I guess, the, the AI aspect of it or machine learning? Yeah, so Textract does provide the initial... OCR and correction and, and all of that stuff. We do run it through an additional layer for additional corrections if needed. Uh, TextTrack is really, really good at picking out um, a lot of 
a lot of very detailed things uh, from from a document, such as tables and even like it parses out those line items on the bill very very well. But there are some things like if if you have a line item that has a space like it has a carriage return or something like that in there uh it doesn't do too well and it thinks that it's a second line item for instance so we we have another layer that goes in and just does uh, a, a once over to make sure that it is doing it correctly so that's that's actually done in rails that there's not much machine learning in that we just we just add some additional rules on top of how text is being parsed right okay so you're basically using stock text and then just a bit of ruby code to to do some finishing touches. Yep, exactly. And it turns out really clean. There, we're getting down to very minimal human interaction for entering those line items specifically right now. So uh, it's it's getting really good. Nice. Like if you had to guess, like how many uploads do you think you handled at this point, or you know things that you've actually parsed? Yeah. So we've handled just under fifty thousand documents since we've started, and some of those documents get split out into multiple page bills. I think we had one bill that was from one document. I think that 3000 line bill was, I, th- I want to say like 42 pages. So uh, the documents don't actually count for pages, but um, yeah, so we, we're just on under 50,000 documents at the moment. That's awesome. How long do you think it took before things got super accurate to the point where you feel like you didn't need to manually review it? So that's been probably in the last six to eight months. Uh, we, d- we just still have a team that kind of shadows and does specific client requests. So sometimes, for instance, uh, this is going to sound weird to people who aren't in the ag industry, but uh, and units are are one of those really big things in the ag industry that's really hard to get right. We'll get a bill in, and it'll be for UAN32, which is a, a fertilizer. And it's a liquid fertilizer, but you actually will buy it in tons and then you'll apply it in gallons. So you need to know the specific gravity of that UAN32 per gallon in order to be able to export it and as inventory in gallons. And so we, we have some, that's just one instance of where we need human interaction to make sure that that specific gravity is correct because you know when you're mixing the UAN32, it could be a different gravity than what's actually uh, the standard uh, it could it could be UAN32 plus something else. So we, we just have the extra layer of the human shadowing to go in and make sure that there's no uh, mistakes. And so it, every once in a while, the system does have those mistakes, but uh, the humans will generally catch it. And it, it always gets um, added to our models to be trained. Right. So what does the workflow look like then? Like, let's say that I upload an invoice and the system does its work. Will I be able to see the results of that right away, or does that need to wait before you do the human review? Like it may take hours or days to get the result. Yeah. So typically, so if I was, if you were a farmer, and you just got an invoice for, let's say, UAN32, you got four tons of UAN32. You took a picture, you uploaded to robot accounts. Within about two minutes, you'll see that invoice in its initial state in robot accounts. So that's after, that's after the. Textract has done its thing. That's after our additional um, clarity parsing has been done. And you'll be able to get an idea of what that bill looks like at that point. Uh, it, once it moves through the different processes, it could take a few days, depending on... We, we also prioritize based on the, the date, the due date. So if the due date is 
tomorrow we will have those prioritized for our human reviewers but generally it's the case that that uh, we'll have it it's probably between one and three days um, before it's actually ready to submit to accounting but at that point uh, it's still well before the due date and so you've, you've got plenty of time to um, hit pay on that before before it goes overdue okay and like from a ui perspective after the customer does the upload do they know that it's in some type of like preview state and they'll get notified when it gets reviewed or something or no? Yeah. So if they uploaded via the app, there's a confirmation that says, yes, we've received your document. It's processing right now. If they've uploaded it via or sent it in via email, they'll get an email back. Um, and if, for instance, if the document is not clear or if it's too small or something like that, they'll get an email. Uh, immediately back that says, this doesn't look right. Please um, check these variables. So it could be um, the pixels, like it, it's not, uh, maybe they've cropped it too much. So there's not enough pixels for us to parse anything out. So it'll say, please upload a higher quality image. Or we didn't detect any sort of bill. There's no bill total. There's no account number. There's no due date. Uh, so please send it in at that point, that kind of thing. So they, they get pretty immediate feedback on whether the bill is, is correct at that point. Right. Yeah, the AI stuff is pretty interesting because I could see maybe maybe an older person or someone who's just not paying attention, right? Maybe they take a picture using the wrong camera and they end up taking a picture of like the world instead of the invoice and you can immediately tell them, hey, by the way, that's not the right one. Yeah, uh, it would be, we haven't gotten it yet, but uh, it would be quite funny if someone confused the front camera for the rear camera and just took a picture of their face or something like that. But yeah, yeah we, do, we do get, um, I actually designed also an app that is built in JavaScript that uses OpenCV and allows you to uh, you basically use any any phone. So it doesn't matter if it's Android or whoever's using Windows phones now. You can open it up in your app in your browser and take a picture. It does the cropping and we'll send it up to robot accounts as well. So there are some ways that we kind of educate the user and also help them to not make mistakes uh, by some of the tools that we design. Nice. Now, speaking of mobile apps, do you have native apps or is it just like web-based or something else? It's a good question. So that is that is something that I'm, I'm pretty passionate about the web technology in general. Uh, I have done mobile apps before. I, I really think that mobile apps are, are good for specific purposes. So like a uh, very high, high in processing, like I have one on my phone that does like LiDAR processing for scanning a room or something like that. That's really difficult to do with JavaScript, but I'm, I'm a huge advocate of using a web-based technology. So we don't have an app. We use all web technologies. So our app, our web app is responsive. Um, the mobile app that I designed is all built in JavaScript specifically for being responsive. So you can use it on an iPad or, or a phone or any, any sort of like it, Amazon tablets sometimes we'll see but yeah it I I really think web is the universal language now and it's really difficult to especially at our scale to design a mobile app for let's say Android or, or iPhone and exclude a big portion of users that may or may not be using those those platforms so yeah for sure so is this kind of like the rails way then with like server render templates and just enough js to do what you need to do or is it is an API backend instead yeah, so that is that is something that uh, my my co-founder and I go back and forth on. I, I'm a big fan of doing front end and server side, uh, front end 
rendering and server-side like API sort of things. As of right now, what we have is server rendering with a little bit of JavaScript sprinkled in where we need it. So we'll use jQuery. We don't actually have a framework that we use, but uh, we'll use jQuery, for instance, to uh, if we need some sort of interaction on the web page. But for the ma majority of it, uh, it can be done server-side um, for this specific app. Huh. It's interesting that you guys are actual friends because like a battle like that, like do I use a front end, you know, heavy library with an API versus like the Rails way? That's like tabs versus spaces or like Vim versus Emacs. Yeah, the, you can really get in some bike shedding arguments on that. And at the end of the day, both of us are founders. And uh, if, if we spend so much time bike shedding on those specific technologies or tabs versus spaces or do you use Sublime or VS Code or... It, it, if you spend too much time on that, you'll never ship a product. So it's you have to find the right balance of doing the, the what what might not seem right and actually shipping a product and making money. Because once you started making money, then uh, we can start having those those debates on okay, so how do we make more money? Uh, well, we can save some server infrastructure by not doing server side rendering or those kind of things. But I think at our stage. Uh, or even a, in a startup stage, it can be premature to decide. Uh, let's all use React with a Node uh, or ExpressJS backend or something like that, and you don't even know, you know, what you're designing for. It's really it's really helpful to to know what you're designing for and then um, choose a technology based on that, rather than choose a technology and then figure out what you're designing. Yeah, that is definitely very well put. So going back to the backend here, do you want to go over like what version of Rails you happen to use? Based on some learnings that we've done, based uh, on our in our previous uh, jobs that we've done, we try to stay as current as possible. So we're actually running the latest Rails, which, as the time of this recording, is six point one point four point one, and we find that you know the the further you push yourself back as far as keeping up to date, um, the more technical debt that you're going to have to pay down in the future. So when I was working at previous jobs we would have to upgrade from like Rails 3 to Rails 4, for instance. And that was just such a huge, huge thing that if you can if you can just keep on top of the latest as it's going, um, then you'll have less of a hard time in the future. And part of that is we have a significant amount of test code. So um, if if I were to guess, uh, we would we would be more than a ratio of one to one for our code versus test. And we're, we significantly prioritize test code because, uh, which also helps make the upgrades easier because we have our automated test suite that will run and check out any bugs. But we have, we have a significant amount of test code that goes in and, and checks that. And so it's, it's almost really easy. I think the last Rails update that we did, um, I opened a pull request, the CI passed it and it was deployed within an, an hour or so. So those those sorts of updates, it's, it's really helpful for your test suite to tell you what's wrong. That's I think yeah for sure. That's I think one of the one of the main ways that we're able to stay so current is uh, it's a significant amount of test code. Yeah, that test code definitely pays off in the end. When it comes to writing that test code, though, do you stick to any like, oh, well, we know we have to have like 85% coverage, or do you kind of just play it by ear based on like, okay, this is really important to test, so let's do that? Yeah, so 
being an app that deals primarily with financials, it's really difficult for us to justify not writing code because we're dealing with people's money at that point. So we don't necessarily aim for a certain number of a certain percentage of coverage. We're pretty close to 100 percent. Like there, there are certain things that we don't uh, that we don't test, like some scopes um, that it's pulling up only these draft bills or something like that. Whereas we might we might test those in in another way, but not specifically. Like you don't have to have one to one. We don't believe you have to have one to one um, code versus test code. But it is really important to test your your essential parts of the app, especially in our case with financials. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think things like number of lines of code is not like the most important thing in the world, but it's kind of interesting to see like what the size of that is just to get a scope of like what your app is like. Do you want to give us a rundown of like, you know, roughly how much lines of code, like maybe how many models do you have, et cetera? Sure. So uh, running, so Rails actually has a built-in code calculator thing. So I'm just going to run Rails stats right here. And it looks like, so as far as models, we have... uh, 76 models and controllers we have 32 controllers and we have a significant amount of controller tests and whatnot that that go on top of those but yeah models controllers and then we do use some jobs so we've got like 10 different types of jobs that we'll use Um, we have four different mailers so yeah that it's just a rough idea of what we have okay but like tens of thousands of lines of code all, all in yeah tens of thousands Okay. Yeah. Uh, I would like to hear a little bit more about those 10 types of jobs. Do you want to go over like what types of things that you're running? Are they periodic or just like one-off? Yeah. So part of our app, because it's accounting system agnostic, and what that means is that we'll we'll integrate with uh, an accounting system called QuickBooks or Xero. They have different ways of reporting on data. So one of the jobs that we have that runs periodically, so once every 24 hours, is a job that puts it into our uh, our ETL, like our data warehouse. So all of the all of the data that's been done for a certain day for a certain client goes that is calculated by that job and goes into one of our databases so, so that it can be reported on. So that's one of the jobs that we have. Um, we have a job for when an email comes in uh, for a document that needs to be processed. So that will kick off a bunch of different jobs, like the extraction job, um, it'll kick off if the, if the email was incorrect, it'll kick off another mailer that says, Oh, it looks like you're missing a document or something like that. So we have, we have one job that kind of spins up a bunch of different jobs. Um, when an email comes in, uh, we have another job that actually does the submission to the accounting system. So that's all done in the background because it could take a while, especially for that bill that has 3000 line items, that job will run in the background and notify the user afterwards. Um, yeah, so those are some of the things. I'm a I'm a huge advocate of if it takes, it, it well, it's, especially if you're calling an external service, but if it takes longer than a second or two, it needs to go in a job. So yeah, absolutely, I'm I'm on board with that one. And when it comes to running these jobs, do you use Sidekick or a different library? Yeah, so we use Sidekick for the actual back end of it, but we use Active Job for the queuing. The reason for that is because we were kind of exploring different queuing different backends uh, at one point, like delayed job, for instance, uh, and rescue for things if you, if you don't want um, a threaded backend. But we decided on a sidekick because it's really, really efficient at what it does. You're able to 
it runs threaded so you're able to make use make more use of your job servers than if it were just uh, like rescue for instance which uses just one worker per process right yeah i vaguely remember that one performance table on sidekick's like wiki page where it shows like sidekick is like 20 times more efficient 100 times faster or you know some numbers like that. right yeah and we're, i mean i'm a huge fan of sidekick there's there are certain things that you don't get with sidekick um if, if you don't like buy sidekick pro for instance so we've had in the case where a job got too big for instance um, we have a really big document that gets uploaded and the sidekick starts processing and, and runs out of memory and then stops well in the current in the free version of sidekick you lose that job and so there's certain things that you get from like sidekick pro that um, are very essential if you're running an app in production so so we don't lose that job in that case it gives like a dying gasp kind of things and chucks the job back on the queue and with an error that says i ran out of memory i'm gonna i'm gonna close down now so ah so nice then you're subscribed to the I don't know, Psycho Pro, it has two different, I think, paid plans. There's like an enterprise and something below that. Yeah, so we didn't need the enterprise sort of thing. So um, the main thing is the job, basically job retries af- if, if a job fails. So the, those are those are some of the things that uh, are very important to us, especially for a financial, uh, financial, like a fintech startup, is we don't want to lose anything. So that was that, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, for sure. Now, besides Sidekick, are there any other libraries in your gem file that really helped you build this app? And like, you know, what types of things did it help you do? Um, off the top of my head, one of the ones that we use uh, when when I when I started building this app, I think Rails six had just come out, which was Action Mailbox, which is their email ingress kind of thing. And so we we use that uh, a ton. So when when a user emails in it actually goes in as like a rails model and you can see the email you can see who it's from you can see who it's to you can see the attachments that kind of thing that's all built into rails so that that was a huge one that uh, helped make our our vision really come true um, we have another one that helps process our pdfs uh, it's called hexa pdf um, really a big fan of that and it's all written in ruby and the it's really well updated well maintained and so we we use that for processing all of the pdfs that come in okay so going back to the code base here is it a monolithic code base or do you have it broken up into separate services beyond just running sidekick as a separate process so that that kind of goes back to what i was mentioning earlier on uh you don't want to over engineer you you don't want to choose a technology before you know you know what you're what you're building so it is a monolith at the moment though we do see breaking out into different services in the future. So for instance, like our PDF, our document splitter. So you go in and you can select a document and say, split it at this page. And then it goes and reprocesses that. We see that as uh, another service that that can uh, happen. Another one that uh, we see as a, as a service is like Textract. So we can throw not just bills, but uh, things like loading tickets and whatever at Textract at this tech track service and it'll come back in whatever format we need it to. So yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely the, we, we see it heading towards the potential need for microservices, but at, at the moment we're, we're still at a monolith that makes development 
actually quite easy because you don't have to spin up a bunch of different services to test something, for instance. And it keeps our CI suite um, pretty pretty lean. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of the monolith. By the way, speaking of CI, what service do you use? So we're on Heroku CI, and I I really I mean it's pretty great. Um, I've used things like Semaphore and Travis and those CIs. I really like, because we actually are hosted on Heroku, I really like the tight integration between Heroku CI and actually the deployment of uh, Heroku. So it kicks off really seamlessly. We've had very little issues with the CI as far as um, making sure libraries are up to date and that kind of thing. So you you really just set it and forget it. And I, I almost forget that we have a CI until I see something that breaks or maybe it takes a little bit longer to run because of uh, some optimization that needs to be done, that kind of thing. So it's it, Heroku CI, I, I recommend because it's kind of set it and forget it. Nice. Yeah, that sounds like the best type of CI. It's like kind of just blends in in the background unless something goes wrong. Now, as for the front end, before we dive into like all the Heroku side of things, do you happen to be using Webpacker or no? So we initially, uh, when, when Rails, when I, I think when I initially created this app, it had... Uh, it was like Rails 6.0 beta, and Webpacker was just starting to get um, big, and it was it was kind of difficult for me to transition from you know Sprockets and the Asset Pipeline. So we switched to Sprockets, uh, and uh, and are wanting to move towards Webpacker specifically for things like uh, service workers or web workers. Um, it makes it a little bit easier for that. And if we ever wanted to drop a framework like React or Vue or something like that in it makes it a little bit easier and also the tree shaking aspect of it. But uh, as of right now, we're running on sprockets with a, with a plan looking forward to Webpacker. Okay. Yeah, it's super interesting too. Like, I don't know if you're tracking what's going on with Rails 7, which at the moment isn't out yet, but DHH, the creator of Rails, he's been releasing videos on YouTube recently talking about how they're not going to be using Webpack by default when you generate a new, a new Rails app. And they're trying to move everything over to use like import maps. Have you heard anything about that? Yeah, I... I, it's funny you mentioned that because I was just uh, watching that video the other day. At, at first, it seems really cool, like the ability to not need to bundle anything, not need to vendor anything, not need to add it to your package.js or whatever, or package.json. You can just uh, put it and it's served by a CDN, which is, which is great. Um, there are some security issues that we would have specifically for the financial aspect of it, where we'd want to vendor, uh, or at least lock a version, uh, to, to that. And also not relying on CDNs, for instance, to always be up in order for our app to be up. So I, I think it's really interesting. I'm kind of a, a laggard when it comes to new technology. So I, I kind of watch it from a distance and see see how it gets adopted but um it's it's a really interesting direction i am i'm excited to see where it goes yeah me too yeah i think the most recent video that he put out it demonstrated how you can vendor those cdn loaded assets like you can version lock them how you'd like and even bundle them up with es build so it was really interesting i forget like the gory details but basically you'll be able to download and manage these things in like a really nice way with just using es build to bundle them up later and no cdn needed Oh, that's, I haven't seen that. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I have to go look at that video. Yeah, I'll drop that video into the show notes. So going back to your tech stack here real quick, uh, is there anything that we didn't talk about yet? Like are you using Postgres and Redis, like Docker, et cetera? Yeah, so we, we do use 
Postgres for our database, and we also use Redis for our caching backend. Uh, we, I kind of came into programming right at the, right at an interesting time in the tech world, right after you know Oracle acquired MySQL and MariaDB wasn't really a big thing, and Postgres was just beating everyone out in benchmarks, for instance. So I, I really kind of fell in love with Postgres way back when, and kind of haven't looked back. I've used MariaDB, for instance, on a few different apps, but. Postgres is really great because um, when we were initially scoping out our app, we didn't know what all of the fields we would potentially need. So we would use like a JSONB column and Postgres really gives you that halfway in between a, like a key value data store or a NoSQL data store and a structured like actual relational database. So, and then we use Redis for our our cache. Um, I used to use memcached in previous jobs. What I really decided on with Redis was it's got really large cache values. So like when we're storing a really large document, for instance, or we're storing some accounts from um, the accounting system, it's really easy to overload memcached's like value size, which is I think one megabyte, whereas Redis has like 512 megabytes. So I really like Redis for, for those sorts of things and like storing data types natively. Uh, so you can worry about uh, if it's a hash or even a string or integer or or those kind of things just coming being stored in there and then coming back instead of memcached, for instance, storing it in a string and having to marshal it in and out. Right. So do you want to go over some examples of things that you had to cache? Was it more like views or just full pages or something else? Yeah. So one of the more interesting caching problems that we ran into was when you're loading up a bill so one of the things that robot accounts allows you to do is like an ag entity would uh, for, for an example potentially be split up over county lines and so uh, as a farmer you would own multiple entities in multiple different counties and so if you're wanting to order one shipment of fertilizer then you would need to split it up across multiple different entities multiple of your entities and so one of the things robot accounts allows you to do is do is to split it up. So one of the interesting caching problems that we ran into was when you're retrieving the data from your accounting system, like QuickBooks or Xero, if you have three entities underneath you, there's going to be a lot of data that comes from those. And so if we were just to load it up on the fly, and like as soon as you load up the, the bill, give you the ability to select which account a certain line item goes into, for instance, or a certain split goes across. It just became to the point where we couldn't make those requests fast enough and the accounting system didn't respond fast enough. So we ended up chucking those in Redis and it dropped our page load times down from, I don't know, 15 seconds, which for larger bills is, is a significant 15 seconds down to I think we're we're under two seconds for even that really large bill. So, the caching is really um, they they the joke in computer science is there's um, there's two problems in computer science: naming things, cache invalidation, and off by one errors. So, uh, cache invalidation is definitely one of those interesting problems. But um, we're we're headed, I think, in the right direction with Redis and how we've how we've done that. So. Nice, yeah, and also Rails does its best, right, to try to create really good keys that you can invalidate or delete or expire, I guess, whenever you want. Yeah. And one of the things that we like about Redis too, what I like about Redis is the ability to evict certain keys based on a regex pattern. So if we, like we namespace all of our cache 
according to the client. So if if we if the if that cache somehow got um, uh, incorrect or something like that, I could just we can just clear the cache for that client instead of clearing it for all of our other users. Nice. And by the way, on that topic, do you do all of that just straight through the command line, or did you build out your own custom admin dashboard that you only have access to? So it's a it's kind of a combination of both. So in the in the case of needing to refresh accounting data, we actually have a button that the user can do. There's an admin panel that we have that the admin can do a little bit. But if we really need to do something insane, we'll uh, we'll we'll use the Rails console. Okay, and then for things like you brought up accounting systems, you know, like QuickBooks, etc. Like, what's that experience been like to? I guess maybe export data to them. I'm not. I'm not sure that would be an import, right? Yeah. So we we do both. We do importing data and exporting. So like zero, for instance, we have reports that we run um, every day and ship those out to our data warehouse. Uh, so we'll, we'll download uh, from that. But yeah. So ag industry has typically been a laggard in adopting new technology, for instance. And what one of the things that I've observed in accounting systems is they're really good at what they do, but it's really difficult for them to add new features or even change the way things work. So when we were working on integrating with Xero and QuickBooks, um, there are certain things that just wouldn't wouldn't work. And so we had to like go around and do something else that we wouldn't wouldn't have thought initially to do. Like there should be an endpoint for retrieving all of the manual journals. Well, there isn't. So we have to go and get all the bills and get all the line items and calculate that ourselves. So there's there's some things that are that I would say the accounting systems are kind of lagging behind, but it might be our specific use case that that is there. But um, but yeah, it, it was it was a fun experience. Um, definitely learning how those multiple different APIs work. Right. When you say fun experience, do you mean it was actually fun or it was like it was fun? I say fun isn't what. Well, you know, some of the things that uh, I deal with day to day are hard and you look back on them and you're like, well, that was really hard, but I learned something from it and I consider learning fun. So it's, I, I'd say it's a bit of both. Um, it was really hard to, to work with them initially, but kind of once we know how it works, it uh, it gets a little bit better. So I, I love learning and I love um, the other side of the hard problem. So I, I, consider both of those as a, as a fun thing. Right. Now, you don't need to throw anyone under a bus here, but uh, when it comes to like dealing with their APIs, were their documentation, was it like up to par, like comparable to Stripe or better, worse? Yeah. So Stripe is kind of the golden standard on API documentation. I think the closest one to Stripe would have been zero. Uh, they've got some pretty good documentation. There's some things, for instance, that don't make sense. Like why do you have different pagination? Why do you do page um, pagination on one endpoint and uh, like count pagination on another endpoint. Um, but overall, I think. Ooh, ooh, hold on. I have to interrupt there. I think I know why. It's probably because they are very afraid to migrate their database at scale. Yeah, that, and that that definitely could be the case. But you think for like a multi-billion-dollar company like Intuit or or Zero, um, they would be able to have someone that knows how to do that. But you know, it, it, at some point, it, it gets down to practicality. And uh, sometimes you just gotta gotta flow with it. But yeah, Zero is pretty good. Um, QuickBooks is pretty good as well. But I'd say the closest to Stripe would probably be Zero. Nice. And like in your day to day, are you spending a lot of time messing around with those APIs, or is it kind of just like now that things are mostly set up, it's sort of on autopilot? 
Yeah, so we the way that we designed it initially was we kind of built out a framework for how we would interact with those APIs. So even if we needed to add a new endpoint to interact with them, like getting assets, um, like farm farm assets or implements or something like that, we can just add a few lines of code and add some tests and then it works. So initially getting that framework set up was pretty difficult, but, um, or I guess I should say it wasn't trivial, but once we got that framework and like the author authentication, authorization, uh, requests and that kind of thing. Um, I think we're, we're pretty smooth sailing now. Okay. It sounds like maybe then these, uh, services didn't come with like a Ruby client that you could use. Like you had to build your own from scratch using like HTTP client. Yeah. So we use, um, one of my favorite HTTP libraries in rails is HTTP party. And so we, we kind of built our classes on top of that. And even though QuickBooks, for instance, did come with a good, uh, like an auth- authorization authentication library, there were some things that we wanted to do that just didn't work with with that. So we ended up um, hand rolling our own library uh, for those sorts of things that we use. Okay. And when it comes for testing those APIs, do you happen to mock out the responses or no? Yeah. So we use a, we use VCR in Rails, and what that will do is basically you can make a request on your development machine and then be able to uh it it writes it to a yaml file like using webmock and then you can just replay that as a web request over and over and over again so um once you get the once you get the initial request right and with the right amount of data it's almost like just a fixture that's used and you can just test it over and over again without hitting those external apis yeah, that's uh, an amazingly useful tool. Now, do you keep it up to date once in a while, just like generating a new YAML file? Yeah, so that that's a little bit of a hairy thing, especially with multiple developers working on it. So, um, it, using their date, using their authentication method like OAuth, um, there are certain keys that need to be regenerated after 30, 30 minutes or something like that. And so, let's say I. I generated the YAML file and now I have the refresh key for generating a new one in 30 minutes. Well, what if my, what if another one of the developers uh, wants to record something? Well, he either needs to get my key or he needs to go generate a new one and authenticate. And in which case he'd potentially need to re-record a bunch of different ones. So we're still trying to figure that out, potentially using like AWS, uh, like there's a key value store, I think in in, uh, AWS that we're looking at. So there are, cer- there are certain things that are that work well for a single developer, but um, when you move those out to scale, it uh, kind of falls apart. Okay. So now speaking of AWS and you mentioned Heroku, maybe now would be a good spot to transition into how things are all hosted up. So do you want to give us the rundown? Sure. So I mentioned earlier that we're running a Heroku CI because we use Heroku. So we do, um, the majority of our infrastructure as far as servers and whatnot are on Heroku. So we have like, I think we have two web uh, nodes, two high priority worker nodes, so like document processor, and then one high memory, uh, so like a document uh, page splitter kind of thing where it needs to keep all the documents in memory. So the high priority workers are like emails, that kind of thing. And uh, the low priority worker, well, I think we also have a low priority worker too. So I think we run about five or six nodes uh, or or um, what are they called? Those containers or something like that on Heroku. Dinos and workers. Dinos, yeah, yeah. So we run run about five or six a day, and we use this um, service called Rails Auto Scale that um, 
scales based on queue length uh, instead of like metrics like response time because uh, response time is it's kind of unless you've got a really well optimized app response time is a is not a, not a really good metric to do so it does via queue length and uh, will scale up in that so rails auto scale is great for that we also use a service called uh, tune my gc because there's a lot of high memory um, applications that we have such as like document splitting and, and page extraction and parsing so we need to know what sort of memory usage is going on and how we can optimize that so those are actually our heroku services that we that we add on so nice and then what about for postgres and redis yeah so postgres we're just using like standard uh heroku postgres uh and it has the rolling backups um and point in time recovery that kind of thing so it's very essential especially you know dealing with the kind of data that we do that we don't lose any data, so it's very, very important for that. And then Redis, yeah, we I think we use um, I don't think we use Heroku Redis, but it's um, it's actually a Redis plugin that that uh, that we pay for and use that that works pretty well. Okay, so that plugin that would be some type of Heroku add-on. Yeah, it's an add-on. Okay, yeah, I'm not super familiar with all of their offerings, but speaking of add-ons, though, like, are there any other ones that you might be using that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Yeah, so we use. Um, like for for logging and whatnot we use paper trail uh which works really well and it's kind of like set it and forget it it you it, one of the things that we ran into was because of the amount of requests i think we get close to half a million requests a month one of the things that we were running into is like all the rails logging is very very verbose so uh recently we switched to log rage which is a gym and that keeps our logs very concise we use like sentry for error reporting so, and it also does transactions like um, speed of endpoints, that kind of thing. And then uh, we use Mailgun for action mailbox ingress. And we actually use um, use it for mail forwarding as well. So we, we, we have a unique use case where we have a uh, an email address that, that you can set up in robot accounts that's a forwarding email address. So like say a farmer wants to send an email in wants that same email to go to his accountant without him having to CC the accountant. So um, Mailgun allows us to do that where he sends it to a, an email address and we forward it to robot accounts in addition to the accountant. So hmm. that's super interesting. So what that email forwarding, is that through your domain name or the customer's domain name? Yeah. So we, we have, it, it's through our domain. Um, so we have like docs at or docs.robotaccounts. And then we have like uh, account uh, AP at robot accounts. So like for for things that need to go to the accountant, that the user can specify. Whenever I send an email into robot accounts, I also want this document to go in here for posterity. Also, it get, gets sent to robot accounts. Okay, that makes sense. Because I was gonna say like, yeah, it's really tricky to deal with email forwarding. Like if the customer had to give their own domain, because then I'm sure you know like things like DKIM and SPF, like all this email verification stuff. Yeah, and um, it's actually a miracle that a lot of growers are using. And I say this with all love because my family is all uh, all growers as well. It's really uh, good that we're actually getting them using email because uh, email is even uh, a harder technology to do. So if you if they're just barely able to sign into a Gmail account, for instance, um, imagine what sort of steps we'd have to take to set up DKIM and SPF and that kind of thing. So yeah, probably not happening. 
like, yeah, just give me your API keys for your DNS uh, host. Yeah. No problem. What's an API key? I've got a ring of keys on my belt. Yeah. No, I get it. <laughs> right. No, before this email stuff, though, we're most farmers and agricultural related folks mostly just like handwritten letters and like faxing and stuff. Yeah. So um, faxing was was a big thing. In fact, when uh, one of the companies that I worked for before, Agwold, um, one of their main selling points was, this is back in the early 2010s, was that they could send uh, things to a fax machine electronically. So people are like, oh, I love fax machines. It's like, and us in the tech industry are like, we need to burn it with fire. And uh, I was recently like talking to to a hospital and they're like, yeah, we need uh, we need you to forward this information to us. And I was like, okay, cool. What's your email address? Like, no, we don't have emails. Those aren't secure. We only use faxes. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. So yeah, fax is a big thing in the farming industry. And uh, so even email is a is a huge step up from that. Yeah, I would imagine faxing over that 42-page thing would not be fun. No, and imagine if it got stuck, you ran out of paper or something like that. There's just all sorts of problems that would go go with faxing. Yeah, for sure. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about how you go from development to production. So if you don't mind, like walk us through what it's like to develop a feature in your dev box to it running live on the site. Yeah, so once we decide you know, what feature needs to be done. We'll create a branch, create a pull, get a pull request going, which actually in Heroku, um, that's one of the things that we really uh, love about Heroku is the ability to spin up an app based on a, a branch. So when we've got a feature going, um, and then we've got a few different features going right now, I'll give those to, I'll give a branch um, like app to one of our product managers and like, here, does this look good? And it's, it allows for a really quick, um, really quick iteration on that. So it'll go back and forth on that. Uh, I can dev on my on my machine if I'm local with the product managers. But most of us are remote, so the ability to just put it up on a server and just be like, "Hey, can you test this whenever you can?" That's that's been huge for us. So yeah, so it basically goes branch pull request um, review app. And then after that, um, as it's going through the React process, every every push that we're doing gets tested by Heroku CI. If we have an area of code that um, another developer is working on that's very similar to mine, we'll have an integration branch where we do a merge, and then that merge will go out to master as soon as uh, as soon as everything's passed and the product manager's checked off on it. So nice. Yeah, those uh, spinning up a separate app for each PR has been a remarkably, like that was not a common thing to do a couple of years ago, but now that I've had access to that too, it's like the best thing ever. Yeah, yep. And uh, one of the things that I used to do was like use Ngrok or something like that, but that required my computer to be always on or something like that. And um, especially it's really helpful for people in different time zones and out of band sort of things where um, maybe they're traveling or whatever and you can't just catch it right so those review apps are just a lifesaver right in the case of heroku does that just spin up a, a brand new separate dyno just for that pr yeah so w- one of the things that um in my sysadmin like devops days uh, i really fell in love with the technology of terraform and so one of the things that we use to spin up our our apps is terraform so terraform will make sure that all the variables for instance in heroku are correct and um, that the app is is exactly you know provisioned exactly how it needs to be and then um yeah the apple the apple spin up at that point so it is a separate node 
separate to production. Um, Terraform manages like which backup we use for which app. Um, so we have different uh, sanitized backups that we'll use that don't have customer data, for instance, uh, or something that we've generated ourselves. So it's like, okay, so we need one with um, contracts in it. Okay, cool. So Terraform knows which backup to pull from in that case and then puts it on in the variable and then Heroku app spins that up or review apps will spin that up. So um, yeah, it's it it's basically a completely different um, completely different environment that doesn't touch our production environment at all, but it mirrors production really closely. Very cool. And it's kind of funny. I'm like thinking about like, okay, this is an hour and uh, five minute episode, probably going to wrap it up in like 10 or 15 minutes, but then, but then you mentioned Terraform. And so now let's talk about some good stuff about that. Um, yeah, it's kind of super interesting, right? Because a lot of folks who use Heroku, it's like one of the benefits of using Heroku is like, well, you just like point and click in their web UI and, you know, maybe some config files and you're basically up and running. But it's cool to see that you're using Terraform uh, with Heroku's provider to have all of your infrastructure in, on Heroku managed through that versus like just clicking buttons on their site. Yeah. Yeah. Terraform has been a, a game changer for me. All of our stuff, like our Textract uh, config and our S3 config and all, all of our AWS process, uh, servers services are all configured with Terraform. So it's it's a way to just, um, and we use Terraform Cloud to actually apply those and keep those all those secret stores securely in there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a way to kind of have your, your code all deployed in one place and you know exactly what's, what's deployed and it detects drift and that kind of thing. Um, I made this app called Luddite that uh, it's kind of a, a, a fun play on words where it'll check our config every once in a while and um, complain to us if something's changed. So um, where it basically runs a Terraform plan and sees is there anything that's actually changed versus what I know about, and if there is, then it'll complain to us. So, right. So basically, just checking to make sure you're not doing things manually. Yeah, exactly. So I've actually never used Terraform Cloud before. Uh, I just use it locally and in CI. Is that just something? Is, does that act like almost like a jump box where like you and anyone else who wants to deploy can manually run commands through Terraform Cloud, or do you still run it on your box directly or even within CI? Yeah. So Terraform Cloud is really good for things like in the cloud. So things that have APIs, um, it, it doesn't work so well for like if you have local bare metal servers or something like that, but for things in the cloud, it works really well. So in this in this case, uh, like for AWS, I put my AWS keys in Terraform Cloud in their secure um, key storage, and then it has access to the entire AWS environment. Same with Heroku, where you have a, a an API key that has certain access that you grant it, and Terraform Cloud has that stored in its its uh, key storage, and then your provider references uh, that key storage whenever it wants to make a change. Okay, and then when it comes to like you know planning things and applying things with Terraform, do you physically run that on your machine, or is that running through Heroku's pipeline? Yeah, so uh, applying applying things in Terraform, you can do it uh, one of a couple ways. Uh, one of them is in Terraform Cloud, so you can manually queue things. Um, so if I if I made a change for a review app that needs a different database, for instance, I'll queue that uh, in Terraform, have it apply to Heroku, and then uh, rebuild the review app in Heroku, for instance. It's it's a really good workflow, and I'm I'm excited to begin moving that out a little bit more. Yeah, I'm actually excited to go check that out, like uh, Terraform Cloud specifically. Sounds like it would be very valuable. Yeah, um, it's it's great because you don't have to like 
in, in the case of a distributed team, you don't have to worry about um, keys in multiple places or like secure key storage. What if someone's laptop gets stolen, that kind of thing. Everything's all in the cloud and, and, um, and secure that way. Right. And also even like saving your state file in some centralized source. Yeah, exactly. So earlier you mentioned that when it comes to like managing your database backups, like pulling them down, you can get a sanitized version of that. Do you want to go over how you're doing that sanitization process? Yeah. So the sanitization, uh, we try to avoid using customer data in database backups that we'll deploy on review apps, for instance. Uh, so uh, the sanitized data is actually kind of generated from things that like bills that we've made up or that we've downloaded online or something like that and run through our system so that we're not actually using real customer data and you know we're not view viewing amounts and that kind of thing that uh, that get associated with the customer so and it also allows us to have a really good uh, separation for the environment so in the case of uh, let's say accidentally a key from a customer was deployed on a review app and it's using live data and the customer we're modifying live data that that completely avoids it because we don't even have that customer in our backup to begin with so right yeah that's really cool to see and when it comes to like some of that data did you look into using like the faker gem by any chance to generate like fake data or not? yeah and there's like factory bot that does that um as well so we we didn't go that route we we just ended up generating it ourselves because we know the specific types of data that we would we would need Right. That makes total sense. Now for these database backups, you know, you mentioned Heroku just takes care of that, right? Yeah. Yep. It keeps a, keeps a rolling database um, backup and also point in time recovery. So was there ever a point in time where you had to actually use your backup or maybe you tested it in like a staging environment just to see if it works? Yeah. So it is really important because um, there's that whole concept of Schrodinger's backup where you don't actually know if it's, if the backup works unless you actually try it. Yeah. One time that I ended up using our backup was when we upgraded uh, Postgres from like our hobby dev um, to like a paid plan. And you have to take a database backup and, and use that. Uh, so that's that's one instance where, I would, uh, where I've used it. But, um, and every once in a while we'll, we'll try restoring like something on our, our local machine because maybe there's maybe there's something that really, really, really cannot be um, done on a sanitized backup and we can only access it. Like there's, there's some sort of state that's wrong in the, in the production database. So we'll restore it on our local just to make sure that that's the case and then, you know, wipe it afterwards. But, um, but yeah, that we, we, we do test our backups and it's very, very important that, uh, if you don't test your backups, you don't actually have backups. Yeah, it's, it's very well put and very good point for sure. Now, do you happen to have any like war stories in, of the past of like things going wrong with your app where, you know, you just got some crazy error that you walked through and was able to fix it? Yeah, um, not in robot accounts. We've only been working a couple of years, but I did. Um, every, every engineer seems to have one of those weird like um, stories where they've done something. So one time I um, was trying to provision a server uh, I like, you know, you have those stories where you kind of like to put it further in the past than it than it actually was. But uh, I think this is probably closer than than I'd like to like to say it was. Um, but like yesterday afternoon. Yeah, no, I think it, it's still years ago. But uh, but it definitely taught me something. So yeah, I was on a, on our production server, which I 
again, this is really bad, but on our production server, we were trying to run another instance of the production server um, for a migration. I was like, okay, so I just need to have a complete raw template. I don't need anything in the in the database. I just want to see if this app works. So Rails has this command called rakedb schema load. And this was before they um, put it behind one of those flags where it's like disable environment check where you, are you really, really sure you want to do this? But this is before that. I did rake db schema load and I had forgotten to change in this deployment of the app, the database URL. So it actually ran a rake db schema load over our production database. And uh, so we started getting calls from customers. It's like, I can't log in. Do you guys, um, do, is there something going on with your app? I'm like, yeah. So it took us, I don't know, probably six hours to restore everything but it, we had learned at that point that our backups were only running you know, once every 12 hours instead of when it needed to be uh, once every couple hours and with the, with the point in time recovery. And this is before, this is another business that wasn't on Heroku. So what we ended up doing was uh, we had all the logs that were run for that day since the backup. And my oh, one of my coworkers and I wrote a script that... Uh, parsed out those logs because in Rails logs you, you can see the parameters that were posted and basically replayed those parameters in through Rails like API via a script to put the data back in the correct order that it was and everything was good. So I think that that started about 3.30 p.m. in the afternoon and I think everyone everything finally got done by 11.30. So that was a really scary scary time but uh, definitely learned a lot from it like don't mess with your production stuff. Just don't. Yeah, that's a crazy story. Like, as you were explaining, like, oh, I just ran a DB schema load. Like, my life was flashing before my eyes just listening to you say that. But yeah, that's like, what is that one term? Like, around st creating stories, like the hero's journey. Like, that whole thing would be like a really good, like, actual TV show. Like, just replaying from beginning to end how the ups and downs and all that fun yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it'd be really interesting. Maybe you should make it one day. Yeah, yeah. So by the way, uh, on the topic of just like, you know, disaster recovery and protecting yourself, do you have any like external sites that hit your site just to make sure it's still up? Uh, not currently. Um, we, it sounds bad, but like we, I'm, I'm in robot accounts like every day. So uh, multiple times a day. So I, I know, you know, within a couple minutes of it actually going down when it, when it goes down, typically um, one of the things that we need to add and is like uh, site slowness monitoring. So like maybe a page is loading slower than normal. Well, why is that? Well, maybe it could be some code that I wrote that was unoptimized, or it could be that um, there's a Heroku event going on, um, that kind of thing. But yeah, I definitely see the need for, for those sorts of things. And um, it's kind of hard to do that uptime stuff when you're really just trying to build out the core app and make, make it really well um, built for your users. Right. So when it comes to like that slowness detection, have you heard of that one Heroku offering? I think it's called PG Extras. Yeah, I I think I have. Uh, most of our like, for, for instance, most of our slowness is not in the database because we're pretty highly optimized as far as that goes. And like in plus ones, I'm really sensitive about those things. We run bullet on our development machines to to try to get rid of those. But um, a lot of it will be maybe we. Um, overdid some JavaScript rendering uh, of like select two boxes, which select two is kind of a pig when it comes to uh, rendering. It's, it's a great library. We love it. We use it all the time. But if you have a bunch of like 3000 line items on a bill, 
maybe it takes a little bit longer to load than, than normal. And so you can't really get that from the database, but um, so we'd have to have you know, something that's checking, checking like front end load times, um, which I haven't found a good one to do that. And maybe some of your listeners can tell me uh, if there's a good one, but yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure of any off the top of my head, but yeah, those those are always the hardest ones, right? Like you need to fully render JavaScript and basically do like a page speed test on right. it. Right, exactly. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? One of them is um, don't over-engineer things. So typically, if you spend a lot of time, uh, like we spend a lot of time in the architecture phase for like determining database schema and that kind of thing. Uh, we really are of the fact uh, of the mindset of uh, we need to we need to ship this. It needs to be practical for what we know, and we can't engineer for every scenario that we don't know about. So just at some point, you need to reach this point where you need to ship it. And um, so that that's one of the things. Is like, don't worry about it being perfect. Make sure that it works for your customers, and then ship it, and then maybe iterate on that later. So that's one of the things that I would say uh, is a, is a big learning thing for for us is, yeah, just sometimes you just need to ship it. And um, another thing is make sure your test code is really good. So we'll have a customer saying, we have this one instance where something is not working and we'll write a test for it and expose it. And most of the time when we do that, we don't actually have to load up the site. We'll just say, okay, what are the, what's the data that the customer is using? Okay, so we're gonna mimic that in a test and then expose that, write the code to fix it and then deploy it even without um, even without spinning up a server locally, for instance. So having good good tests um, is, is phenomenally underappreciated and it's, it's one of the things I'd encourage um, people to do. Yeah, those are both two very good tips and they kind of play into each other too because it's like, as you have these really good tests, then you know that code that you write originally, maybe you want to change it later. Well, that's going to be a lot easier when you have really good test coverage. Right. Cool. So Josh, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything? Yeah. So uh, one of the things is we're always uh, looking for great developer talent. So uh, if you're interested in working for robot accounts and working to change the accounting industry, feel free to shoot me an email. My email is josh at roboticcounts.ai. Our website is roboticcounts.ai. Yeah, and you can find us on Twitter at roboticcountsai is the username there. Nice. So I'll make sure to link all of those in the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player, or leave a review if you like the show.